It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Different countries have dealt in different ways during the pandemic with exams for their students, postponing or plowing ahead, curtailing or cancelling. We dig through the results and emerge with a broader view of the merits of high-stakes tests. And as COVID's economic effects have started to bite in South Africa, an existing problem has gotten far worse, livestock theft. There's a thriving market for those in the know, and after a bit of uh, rebranding and reselling, it all looks a bit like cow laundering. But first... In Paris this weekend, police fired tear gas at protesters. But violent clashes with police weren't limited to the capital. Demonstrations have grown since two videos showing alleged police brutality emerged last week. Later today, the interior minister responsible for the police will face a parliamentary hearing into the violence. What's fed the anger is a bill currently being debated that would make it illegal to post or broadcast videos or photos of police if that posting is with malevolent intent. It would bolster protections for the country's police, but it comes after a year in which police violence, both in France and around the world, has been brought to light through videos. Tens of thousands of people took to the streets despite lockdown, not just in Paris, but in cities all over the country. Sophie Petter is The Economist's Paris bureau chief. There were some violent clashes, not everywhere, but some violent clashes with the police. There were stones thrown at the police, cars set alight, a newspaper kiosk set alight. So it was a real show, I think, of of discontent among the French about what's going on. And what is it that sparked all this discontent? Well, it was triggered really by a video that emerged last week of Michel Zecler, who is a black record producer in Paris, being beaten up by three policemen, savagely beaten up. Apparently, he wasn't wearing a face mask, and he initially spent 48 hours in detention for violence against the police himself. There were allegations by Zakler that he was called a sale negre, which means dirty negro, by police officers. It wasn't the only video. There was another one related to the clearing of, of a refugee camp, but it really was this attack on the record producer that triggered these these protests and and with these allegations, I mean, how, how common is that, that kind of evident police brutality in France? Well, I think you have to remember that France has experienced widespread protests by the Gilets Jaunes movement, especially last year and the previous year, which became very violent. There were frequent clashes between protesters and the police, both violent, one against the other. And in 2019, there were over 860 official inquiries into police violence. That That was up from about 600 the year before. And some of these were violent. You saw on video, right, policemen in one case 
shooting a rubber bullet into a protester at a very close range, about at two metres. And the UN Human Rights Commissioner last year actually talked about serious allegations of excessive use of force in France, particularly with non-lethal weapons. And so if that is kind of an endemic problem in French policing, then then why have these recent cases with Mr. Zeckler and, and the refugee camp become such a flashpoint? Well, I think what's happened is the coincidence of these incidents with a general security bill that's going through Parliament. And this was already controversial. It's designed to reinforce police powers. The police feel that they themselves are the targets of violence. And Article 24, which is the contentious part of this bill, would make it illegal for anybody to post or broadcast an image which identifies an individual officer with the manifest aim, quote unquote, of harming physically or psychologically that individual. So the fear is that this would shield the police from the exposure of these kinds of incidents of brutality that we've seen this last week. And amid all these examples of brutality, why is the government even proposing this law? I mean, it's understandable that there is a need to protect the police, in particular in France, because we have seen the number of police officers wounded in operations and target of violence has doubled over the last 15 years. In fact, there was a case in 2016 where a police officer and his partner were stabbed to death in front of their three-year-old son by an individual whose computer actually listed policemen as targets. So there is this need to protect the police, but there is also a real concern that how you prove manifest aim to cause harm under the new article, whether or not that would mean it's very difficult for anybody to post these videos, in particular for journalists to do their job. And what do those arguments look like in in Parliament, in, in the press? Well, the French media has been up in arms about this. Le Monde newspaper, for example, ran an editorial in which they called it pernicious, this Article 24. In particular, there's concern about how on earth manifest aim would be established and whether that would, in effect, inhibit the publication of any of these sorts of videos. But I thought one of the most interesting things was that during the first reading in Parliament on November 24th, there were actually 10 of Macron's own deputies from his party, so the République en marche, who voted against it, and 30 of them abstained. So although the bill has still got to go to the Senate, I think that gives you a sense of how much discontent there is with the bill, even within the president's own party. And about the the incident that sort of magnified this and brought people onto the streets, I mean, this this fits into a broader narrative we've seen this year with the the filming of police violence, especially with a a racial dimension. How has that figured into this whole discussion? Well, it's complicated in France because the French don't collect any data on citizens' ethnicity. It's actually illegal. So you cannot easily determine how many people of colour are targeted or singled out by the police. Having said that, there are attempts to try and establish this and the former ombudsman for the Defender of Rights in France said that anyone who is perceived as black or Arab is 20 times likelier to be arrested. So that gives you some sense of what's going on here. And the George Floyd murder did raise that issue in France again. There was a sense that there have been French cases that seem similar. In 2016, there was a case where Adama Traore, who is a Frenchman of Malian origin, died in custody after a fairly brutal arrest by the police. 
And it was interesting that even Emmanuel Macron, the French president, who had said he was very shocked by the video of uh, Michel Zecler, this most recent case in France, he then said on social media that those images put us to shame and France must never let hatred or racism prosper. So I think that tells you what he is detecting in, in what's going on here, which is extremely important. So given that this question of racism and brutality in the police and this this new bill are now intimately tied together... Well, I think so. And my impression is that there is a bit of a rethink going on in in government at the moment. Two things. One is that the justice system has moved very fast. Last night, the public prosecutor ordered the three policemen who carried out the beating of Michel Zecler to be charged with various crimes, including intentional violence, use of racist language, and even falsifying police records. And the other is that I think there are some second thoughts about Article 24 itself. The Vice President of the National Assembly has actually asked for it to be dropped altogether. I don't think that will happen, although he is from Emmanuel Macron's own party. But there is an attempt now to look at the wording, to think again, and to see, you know, whether or not this article is the the right way to proceed. I think this has really become a major political focus for France. It's actually knocked the whole question of the pandemic off the sort of top of the news agenda at the moment. And it is going to be something that's going to dominate debate here, at least in the coming weeks. Sophie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This week, half a million teenagers will take South Korea's much-feared high school exit exam. To encourage them, younger students often cheer them on outside school. Some even serenade them before they start eight hours of tests. This year, the serenades will be banned, and candidates will all be wearing masks. But besides that, the exams will be very much like last year's. In other countries, tests have looked very different from normal, if they've gone ahead at all. This summer, exams in England were cancelled. A central body instead awarded grades based on predicted exam results and an opaque algorithm. I've spoken to a lot of people who've all said the grades have been lowered. I just think it's like really random and unfair. Like, we don't really even know what it's been based off. After cries of inconsistency and unfairness, Students were, in the end, given the grades their teachers had originally predicted. These divergent approaches across the world to high-stakes exams have frustrated students and educators alike, and once more raised questions about just what the tests are testing. Countries that make use of big public examinations to grade school students have faced tricky questions this year. 
Mark Johnson is The Economist's education correspondent. They've had to decide how and whether to deliver exams, given worries about safety. And they've had to decide how to adapt papers to make them fairer to pupils who've faced lots of disruption. And so how did different countries deal with, with these challenges? Well, exams vary widely around the world, and the approaches are probably easiest to compare if you look at school leavers' exams. So in lots of places, those went ahead, sometimes after postponements. China's big exam happened in July, a month later than usual. And Germany's end-of-school exams also went ahead, though um, even though they only account for quite a small share of, of the final grades that students get given. Some countries made big adjustments to exams. The content in Spain's university admissions test was slimmed down, for example. Uh, Hungary and Austria are examples of places that went ahead with you know, written papers, but called off oral exams, which they thought were a bit riskier from a health perspective. Uh, in America, the AP exams were shortened from a couple of hours to only about 45 minutes. They were delivered online and uh, Ecuador delivered an online exam to high schoolers as well. Some countries such as France, Ireland and Britain cancelled all school examinations. So they ended up having to base their grading this year largely on teachers' predictions of what their pupils would have achieved had exams gone ahead. So in summary, what do you see in the results of all these different approaches? A lot of the information so far suggests that where school leaving exams have gone ahead, examiners have generally given pupils grades that are fairly consistent with those of past years. On the other hand, grades have risen quite a lot in places that cancelled exams and relied more on teachers' predictions. So in France, for example, 96% of pupils passed the, the baccalaureate exams, up from 88% the year before. Uh, authorities were expecting this because actually every year teachers tend to predict that their pupils will do better in exam halls than, than they really do. But the extent to which countries decided this grade inflation was a problem actually differed quite a lot. So Britain made a big effort to adjust the teacher predictions so that they would look a bit more like the grades that were handed out to pupils the previous year. And so there'd be a bit less unfairness from the fact that some schools mark more or less generously than others. But they ended up having to abandon that approach after an outcry and every pupil got the grade that their teacher had predicted. But with all of these examples around exams and their outcomes and what happens when you alter or delay or, or cancel them, does, does that open up a, a wider discussion about the, the merit of exams more generally? Well, crudely, debates about exams tend to take on two forms. You know, first, if we have to objectively assess a student's achievements, how far are exams a good way of doing that compared to all the other options you might use. And second, do we actually need to perform those assessments quite as much as we think we do and for the purposes that we think we do? I mean, the, the first debate is the easiest to grasp and one that's getting a lot of attention right now. Uh, exams disadvantage students who just perform badly on the day. And there are systems that seek to go without national exams, such as America, where high school grades are decided by teachers and, and, and pupils pick them up all along the way. But, but that has its own problems too. There's lots of research over the years suggesting that teachers show you know, subconscious biases in their own grading. That can result in some ethnic minorities getting lower marks than maybe they should have done. There was a study last year showed that teachers in America were likely to give lower marks to an essay that was written by an author who they were led to believe was overweight. But these kinds of debates were, were surely going on before the pandemic. I mean, how, how were they shaping up before all this? 
Yeah, well, speaking very broadly, there is a trend of deprioritizing final exams in countries, you know, by by adding in marks from other kinds of assessments that are carried out along the way. You know, some of them involving teacher assessments, some of them involving you know, external marking and moderation. And that's what you see in France, where 40% of the school leavers' grades are now in the bag before final tests happen. But the, the big picture is actually very mixed. A few years ago, England went in the opposite direction. It, it put more emphasis on exams, which it thought were the best measure uh, of, of achievement in practice. And in South Korea, scandals about university admissions have also cast you know, something of a shadow over efforts to make the big national exam they have there you know, less central to the university application process. And so what effects do you think will the, the, the data that have emerged from pandemic era testing or failure to, to test, how will that change these debates, do you think? Well, I think the disruption this year is reigniting conversations about some specific exams that were already to some extent controversial. So in America, for example, the number of universities that say they no longer require applicants to send them SAT scores has gone up from about 45% before the pandemic to, to more than 70% now. Um, England has national exams for 16-year-olds. These are a bit less essential than they used to be uh, because pupils now have to stay in some kind of education for a further two years after that. And it would not be at all a bad thing if the crisis helped to persuade more developing countries that they no longer need exams at the end of primary school that can sometimes impede kids' progressions uh, into secondary schooling. But more broadly, I think this year's disruption has probably only hardened the positions of people who were supporters or critics of exam-heavy systems in the first place. For lots of people, going without exams this year has only helped to underline how very useful they can be. Mark, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. On the outskirts of Bethlehem, a town in South Africa, there's a crime affecting farmers that's reached beastly proportions. The problem with stock theft in our area is it's nothing new. But this last couple of years, it totally got out of hand. That's Herky Villun, a local farmer and a victim of livestock theft. They've got a whole syndicate type of operation running for where they steal, they transport, they sell and they slaughter the animals very quickly after they are stolen. In South Africa, livestock theft is a big and growing problem. John McDermott is our chief Africa correspondent. In the 12 months to March of this year, 218,000 farm animals, by which we mean cows, sheep or goats, were stolen, up from 180,000 five years earlier. And the total value of that equates to $60 million or so per year. And people worry that the losses this year will be even worse, as the effects of the pandemic mean that more South Africans are turning to illicit livelihoods. So who is it that's doing the stealing? A few decades ago, livestock theft was, as they say here, mostly for the pot, i.e. people took a cow, they butchered it, they had it for dinner. These days, the vast majority of cases involve criminal syndicates. And these gangs, they act differently in different parts of the country. But where Mr. Villun is, in Free State and in neighbouring KwaZulu-Natal, a common practice is for thieves to load up cows, often by the dozen, onto trucks then cross into the neighbouring mountain kingdom of Lesotho, 
where they rebrand. So they literally take a hot iron and they put that mark over the existing mark. And then they'll take the cows back over the border, back to South Africa, where they're sold at auction or to abattoirs. For me, it sounds an awful lot like the laundering of stolen sports cars, but with cows instead of Porsches. So is the stealing going on from big commercial farms or from smallholders? The victims of the largest heists, the cow laundering, if you want to call it that, tend to be white Afrikaners who run the big commercial farms. They're also often the victims of high-profile farm murders, perhaps one in five of which is related to these criminal syndicates. But most cases of theft actually involve black smallholders. And since these farmers tend to have fewer animals to begin with, a single case of theft can wipe out their entire livelihood. So it's a concern for both black and white farmers alike. And you say the problem is getting worse still. I mean, what are people doing to try to stop it? Well, as is often the case in South Africa, whether we're talking about education or healthcare or security, people who can afford it are finding private solutions to the problem of the public sector. Herky Viljun, the farmer, has a command centre in a town called Bethlehem in the Free State, and it has 65,000 CCTV camera feeds coming in from all around the local area looking for cattle rustlers. And quite a lot of his peers will have drones or GPS tagging on their cattle to try and find their purloined stock. But all this tech can only do so much. Well, quite. I mean, where are the authorities in this? Are they not helping with the problem? The South African Police Service has dedicated stock theft units, but they are siloed from the rest of the police service and they don't have enough funding which has meant that there have been few arrests and prosecutions of these criminal syndicates. Now, the Minister of the Police, Becky Selly, has told farmers that he will crack down on the gangs that are behind livestock theft. So that has given farmers some encouragement, but they're still waiting to see real action. The only wish I've got is to, to farm here and to do what I love doing. That's, that's my only wish. And to do it in an environment where, where I can do it freely. John, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.